Welcome everyone, I'm Sarah Dillard, one of Business Program Assistants, and you are listening to our new podcast, Mizna Stream. Mizna is a forum for Arab American film, literature, and art based in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find us online at Mizna.org, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In June 2016, Rowie, the Radius of Arab American Writers, and Mizna joined forces for the second time to host the Rowie and Mizna Lit Gathering in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Rowie is a not-for-profit literary organization dedicated to supporting and disseminating creative writing and scholarly writing by Arab Americans. In their work, Rowie seeks to represent a progressive voice in the American community and a voice for justice in the U.S. and abroad. They seek to promote the building of coalitions and collaborate with others around issues of social justice. In this episode, you'll hear audio from a public discussion entitled Surviving the Rhetoric, How Are Islamophobia and Anti-Arab Sentiments Affecting Our Community and Creativity? This conversation was moderated by Ali Al-Abadi and featured Sara Yassin, Jenna Shalomith, Ramla Bileh, and Haldun Saman. This audio was recorded live on June 18, 2016 at Open Book. Enjoy the show and thanks for listening. Hey everybody, how you doing? What's going on? How's everybody? What is Gucci? What is good? How's everybody doing? My name is Ali. I'm going to be moderating this panel on surviving the rhetoric about Islamophobia. It's a very timely, very needed discussion. And lovely panelists around the house, give them an applause if you want to. Squad. All right, so what we're going to do first is we're going to go around make sure we give some informal introductions, a little bit of an icebreaker, if you will. So starting off, please give your name. If you want to give your title, feel free. And for the sake of Minneapolis, what's your favorite Prince song? So whenever you're ready, the mics are right by you. I think there's one on. So let me go ahead and pass that on. We'll start it off with you. Um, hi, I'm Sari Yassin. Sarah Yassin, if I'm speaking to people who don't speak Arabic, because I'm really passive about my name. I work at BuzzFeed News. I work on a team called Curation. And what we do is we run social media, the homepage, and the app. So I'm on the front lines of everything that you get on your phone. Right. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And <laughs> am I a bad person if I never really listen to Prince? <gasps> my parents my parents were very of the like music as haram unless it's Abdul Halim Hafiz kind of like the OG prince yeah <laughs> that's how they that's Air how they operated prince. yeah I feel it <laughs> hi I'm uh, Khaldun Saman I'm a sociologist by training although I don't like to identify myself as a sociologist although I do appreciate what they do I do a lot of different things. I'm kind of an eclectic sociologist. I, I like to study things like incitements. That's one of my real major interests, things that we call moral panics. A favorite Princeton, or do I, should I say more? I live here. Um, I, I teach at McAllister College. It's a liberal arts college. I was born in Zarqa, Jordan. Came very young to the U.S. in New Jersey. Uh, lived most of my life there. And my family name used to be Salmon. I decided to consciously change it and make it Saman again. And it's really interesting when my cousin called me uh, a couple weeks ago and he got my voicemail. And on my voicemail, I said, Kaldun Saman. And he was really shocked I would leave 
my name, my family name, as Saman and a voicemail where Americans hear it because we use salmon for the rest, right? <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> oh, favorite, favorite uh, you know, kind of like Sarah, I don't really listen to Prince. Realizing this okay. question is going down south very fast. Very fast. But it's all good, though. My name is Jenna Shalameth. I live here in St. Paul. I'm a snobby New Yorker, so even though I've lived here for 20 years, I say I'm from New York. When I'm hanging out with friends, I say I get paid to be an oppression janitor. So I work for local governments. The county that St. Paul is housed in, it's the largest county here in Minnesota and the most racially, ethnically, and linguistically diverse county in the state. And when there are oppression messes, I get called to clean it up. My official title is diversity specialist. Um, yes, the government does pay someone to handle that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm your gal. And wow, when I was 14, Prince asked me to dance at First Avenue. What? And I was so freaked out that I said no. Damn. Way south, way south. <clears throat> so, and, and I am appreciating, for the last few years, I've been really appreciating sometimes it snows in April. Yes. And especially now that he's passed. Yeah. Hi, my name is Ramla Villa, and I'm a Minneapolis-based writer and consultant sometimes to keep lights on and stuff. And I also don't really have a favorite Prince song. Damn. But you know what? I appreciate him as a black man, as a philanthropist, yes. as an activist, and I, I take all of that, and I appreciate all of that. Anyways, that, went, so. that went north fast. Okay. <laughs> My question was for not. <laughs> all right. So keep that mic with you. So you guys are going to be passing that around during the duration of the discussion, and then we're just going to get into it. So let's start out with the most hard-hitting question. How is the spin story curation in major media outlets affecting Middle Eastern, North African, South Asian, and Muslim voices as a whole in the national dialogue in the wake of the Orlando shooting? I should probably say I'm representing me. I'm not representing all of the mainstream media or BuzzFeed. Um, so we've probably all seen the kind of coverage that's come after Orlando, and it's probably very familiar to us, especially as people who have been in this country post 9-11. And I think that there is this fundamental problem where there is a difference in how we speak about these things, and it does have a very real impact on people's lives. And actually in the UK, when this MP was slain, there was an op-ed that was written in the FT where they were talking about how the British media has been so careful about this man who shot and killed a member of parliament. And actually, I don't know if you guys saw this, but in court, when they asked him his name, he said, Britain first, like something along those lines. So the Daily Mail, which we know how they would tell the story if it were Muslim, they described him as a timid gardener. So the thing that the FT was, the point that they were making was that people were extremely careful about not exaggerating, not sensationalizing things, and being very careful. And that actually is the right way to do it. That's how we should be reporting these things. When you do have a perpetrator in this situation, your responsibility as a media organization is to report what you know, not what you think you know, not what you think your audience wants to hear, but what is actually happening. And sometimes it's disgusting the way that things get spun out of control. And one thing that I do know is that 
oftentimes people will turn around and they'll say, well, it's because the media has this grand conspiracy against Muslims or brown people or anything like that. And there's, if there's anything I've learned in the years that I've been in newsrooms, it's that this is merely the product of a lack of diversity. So you have people that perpetuate these narratives because that's what they know. And they're all white men from a certain background. And I felt just being at BuzzFeed, which is a company that does prioritize diversity, and I'm in a newsroom that still needs to be more diverse, but is more diverse than I've experienced in the past. And I feel I can see the effect of having different kinds of people in the room. So for example, when you are in that moment, when you sit there, so for example, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that this Orlando shooter, he went on this suspicious trip to Saudi Arabia organized by NYU. It was Umrah. It was fucking Umrah. And I was, I just flagged to people. I was like, hey, by the way, this is like a very normal trip for Muslims to take. Extremely normal. Like, this man is a sick, horrible man. I'm sure there are very factual things that you can find to report about him. But actually, this is not a news story. So when you have more people like that in a newsroom who can say that kind of thing, who can push back in those moments, that's helpful. But you also fundamentally have, a, have to have a company or a news outlet that actually wants that kind of feedback. So I feel like that's right. two big important things. No doubt, no doubt. I'd like, to see, I'd like to see about it from uh, Jenna's perspective as well. If you could talk about it a little bit, just as being an oppression janitor as you bill yourself. You know I'm saying? the man. <laughs> capital T, the, capital M. I should sit like the this. The man doesn't want us to have any power. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so when I first took a job with the government, my friends, especially friends that came up with me, were worried. What's happened to you? And it's... I'm an anarchist. It's a very strategic, interesting place to try to make change. And Nadia and I had a great conversation last night about reforms and selling out and getting discouraged. And I have a... So since my title is diversity specialist, I think a lot about the difference between doing diversity work, cultural competency work, and social change work. And I want to talk about stories, And stories have been told about us, not by us, to conquer us for hundreds of years. So where do we get to tell our own stories outside of something that is systemic, institutional oppression for hundreds and hundreds of years to take our land and our resources and needle its way into our brains, our imaginations about ourselves and about each other. And so my job at the government is, how do I change policies, procedures, and practices, something that's systemic? Because I, as an Arab woman, I have a perspective and I have knowledge, and that's important that I'm in the room. But as soon as I leave the room, it doesn't matter. And also, it's the government, hi, we're helpful, here I have a blanket with smallpox, right? So how to, how to actually change this huge ship? I think the most important thing I want to say is that I've been thinking about this a lot in all of my conversations that have happened in the last few days about how we imagine ourselves and how we imagine each other. And we're artists, so we're creating representations. How do we get real? How do we show up real? The different women and some men that I've talked to, we've talked about our, the fashion that, we're, that we chose to wear here 
or our names, and how do other era, how are we mediating that image? And there's the Arab that, and we all have this. So I guess I'll reverse. I'll start in a different place. What do you love about Arabs? Just think about that for a second. What do you love about yourself as an Arab? And then, what do you hate about other Arabs? <laughs> that list is going to go a mile long for the rest. And, and let's get close to that Arab. What would you have to face to get close to that Arab? I mean, we all grew up with a certain image of an Arab, and I wanted to stay away from that because it wasn't, that wasn't a good Arab, that wasn't a safe Arab. And how do we love every single Arab? Yeah, I think that's very revolutionary. Which is good, and that, that kind of leads into my next question, actually. In the wake of uh, Donald Trump's running nomination for presidency, if you'd like, ladies and gentlemen, please feel free. How is it effectively silencing the voice of reason and understanding when it comes to Middle Eastern voices, North African, South Asian voices as a whole, in the national discussion of we're not part of the terrorist narrative, we're just normal Americans working, living, breathing every day just like everybody else? Can I be rude and go back and add a you comment on the last question? You absolutely can. You absolutely can. Please do. Um, one thing that was just really frustrating for me, just in the wake of the Orlando shooting, was just, I don't know about you guys, but I'm so tired of the basic narrative. There's a single story that comes out about a lot of us as Muslims, as people of color, and what was frustrating here is there's often no room for nuance and complexity about us. So one conversation that was very quiet that I saw was one about toxic masculinity and just the importance of I mean the common denominator among a lot of mass shooters is actually gender it's it's not religion but the narrative is often focused on religion and even as I look at um, coverage of Somalis and a lot of the missing men locally and those who've joined ISIS and the coverage of that it's it's been focused on that single narrative and I wonder like if we could just imagine a more complex real world, like what coverage might look like. Um, and even in terms of, uh, I just remember I was on the, the Honey Instagram page, Humans of New York, and I remember seeing an image of a boy who was 15 and talked about how he wanted to join the Marines, but his dad wasn't going to let him, but he wanted to be a freedom fighter, basically, or whatever, like wanted to go out and dominate and, and do this. And I just remember thinking, like, why would a 12-year-old boy have that, like, vision for himself? But the reality is a lot of young men romanticize violence and whether it's a mode or an allegiance that's approved of, like the Marines, or whether it's an insurgent group, like that that's an important conversation and one that I, I haven't seen come out and one that I feel like is just personally frustrating as I see a lot of this coverage of, you know, black men, Somali men, Muslim men. Absolutely. No doubt. No, that's a good point. And I'm gonna effectively revoke that previous question that I had. I'm going to move forward to another question that's more in line with that. What can we do to present a more unified perspective with regards to Islamophobia? And how can we make sure that voices such as the LGBTQIA community, African-American, African voices, and other races and cultures, aside from the dominant Middle Eastern, South Asian perspective, are present and participating in that discussion? I'll let you lead that off. I mean, I think one is just engaging and listening to people of color and people from the communities that are impacted. I mean, I'm, I 
thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. I, I think things like that are definitely really helpful. I also think just you know, join us in the struggle. Like, we need allies. I don't like being the only person to, like, serve as media watchdog for my community. Like, I wish sometimes other folks would speak up. And even in terms of the entrapment case that's been happening recently and the CVE stuff, like, I've been wondering, like, where are our allies? I want to see you guys writing op-eds. I want to see you guys at our community meetings. Like, I, I, there's, I just feel like, my community personally has felt really isolated in some of these social justice and civil liberty struggles, and I want to kind of each of us to not own the space or take over, but participate and ask, like, how can I be supportive? What can I do? And, like, really engage us in, in, this, in this struggle, sort of. No doubt. Would you like to elaborate? Yes. This is working good. I think that's a really great way to think about it in terms of how do we get others involved, right, especially people of color and African-American Muslims and what have you. And I think there is a problem for the Arab-American community, I know, for in terms of there's very little kind of alliance work going on, right? And we tend to get sometimes upset that we don't see allies come to our issues, right, when Islamophobia kind of erupts. And I think there's a reason for that, precisely for what you say, right, in terms of you don't build alliances with other communities they're less likely to be interested in getting involved in your own issues, right? So I think it's a really practical issue. But we're going so, so fast through these questions. Um, Zero to 100, real quick. You know, it's like I wanted to respond to that first question, especially the second half of the question, right? Right. Um, about what is happening to us as we are experiencing this Islamophobia, right? Okay. What is really happening to us? And again, I go back to a phone call that I got um, that helped me to think about this about four years ago. It's been a long time now, but I always remember that phone call, my brother calling, right? Uh, his name is Ayman. He calls me from Florida. We're just talking, and he goes, you know, Khaldun, everything I do now is interpreted by my friends as being somehow related to Islam, even good things, right? That everything, uh, it's like we become condensed into this one thing, right? It's like... Now, all of our actions, so when I go to the Middle East and I have interactions with relatives and what have you, they're trying to get me married, I come back and I tell that story to my friends here. They're like, oh, was it an, were they trying to do an arranged marriage? You know, it's like they see, they see you through the lens of that discourse, right? You become this culturized other. Even though I am very pale-skinned, very, like in many ways, assimilated in many ways, right? And so my, my Muslimness, I, as a person who hasn't felt this as much as other, especially in my family who is a little bit more darker skin and what have you, I'm experiencing this myself. I can't imagine what it would feel like for other Arab Americans who are here, uh, you know, in just the last two, three years, have st- strong accents and what have you, right? But I think it's really having an effect also in our ways that we see ourselves as well, not just the way they see us, Right. And so we are, in many ways, reducing our imaginations, I think, where we're talking back through the discourse in a way that is slowly, without consciously understanding how it works, condensing our own identity. And I see this not not necessarily with uh, academics and intellectuals who have thought about this, but in the larger population, that there's more and more of a, a reduction of our identities through that lens. We can get into that a little bit more as we go. 
Absolutely. And I kind of want to press a little bit more on the LGBTQIA perspective because I don't think that's a voice that's present enough in the conversation. And especially because they're facing a double whammy in this wake of the Orlando shooting. It's what can we do to make sure that their voices, again, are present and participating as well and that we're not shunning them away based on judgment? So um, actually, I kind of, yeah, I wanted to respond to a couple of things. But um, I mean, I think on that specific question, I think part of the issue is that, again, when we have these big discussions, they're very simple, right? So I watch CNN all day. All day long, I watch CNN. I'm so sorry you have to suffer through Wolf Blitzer. I hear everything Wolf Blitzer says. (laughs) But my brain is stronger, (laughs) I think. But the, the thing that's important about seeing CNN is that you see what most of everyone hears. This is, this is what informs their version of what has happened in a certain situation. And to a certain extent, that's also social media, right? So one narrative that's been bubbling up post-Orlando is you know, people talking about we're shining a light on the Muslim community's LGBT problem, right? So the thing that's hard is that Right now, there are LGBT Muslims who are like, you need to recognize our problems. So on the one hand, it's don't use our grief to justify XYZ policies that have like unfairly hit our communities. But on the other hand, to our own communities, please stop marginalizing us. The problem is in in the national discussion, especially within the media, there's not really room for that middle ground. Because the basic problem is, you know, homophobia in a community, particularly one that's marginalized, one that's policed, one that's been treated unfairly, is that its homophobia is part of the wider narrative of homophobia. It's part of the wider part of this country, and that's how it manifests itself. The problem is, whenever you talk about a lone wolf shooter, when you talk about any kind of injustice that's taken out by someone who's viewed as native, their citizenship isn't called into question. So this is the whole problem, is that now because of this shooter being Muslim, All of our citizenships are being called into question. So you have Trump actually saying Muslim immigrants and their kids are a threat. We are proof that immigration has failed. And that's a problem. The problem that you have CNN like actually asking these questions of Muslim community leaders. And it's again playing into this whole good Muslim, bad Muslim thing, right? You can only be one or the other. And that's a huge problem. Exactly. And an interesting statistic to present to that is that in the past six months, there have been over 133 mass shootings in just the United States. And only San Bernardino and Orlando are the ones that call the entire Muslim population into question. Kind of strange, right? I think that's that's about our narrative. And I want to talk about that totally gorgeous intersectional place that is GLBTQI and um, I said GLBTQI again. Yeah. So and Muslim. I'm Jewish. I'm queer. Um, an Arab. And for anyone who hasn't read Bell, I love getting to reference books with a bunch of writers. It's so fun because I'm like, yeah, you'll jab on this. Um, so if anyone who hasn't read Bell Hooks is all about love, it is all about love, right? And that's what my queers got down, right? Is that we know, we know how to love. And because so many of us have been rejected by a biological family, we've gotten that love magic of choosing family. And that's why it's 
fucked me up so much that this happened on the dance floor because that's where I have felt the most free and the most beautiful and the most loved in a body that has been, wow. So are you hairy like that all over? Do you belly dance for your husband? I mean, sexualized and eroticized from a very, very young age as an Arab woman. And so as a queer Arab woman to love my sexuality, love who I love, and I don't want to get into cliches of like, love is love. Uh, There's a very radical, revolutionary um, space for queer love. Circling back to, I I think an incredibly radical, revolutionary act is is to love ourselves and each other as Muslims and Arabs, and to say very definitively, you can't come between us. Rommel and I actually went to college, and we decided very early on in our relationship, nothing will come between us. And if we have any confusions, we're going to come to each other Mm -hmm. and talk about that and clean that up and stand with each other. So I may not completely understand everything that she personally or her community faces, and our communities overlap, Um, but I will stand with her. And that's what we get to do. Yes. Um, uh, so I definitely think we do definitely as a community have to talk about LGBTQ and, uh, and the question of marginalization. But there's also another thing I think we have to think about when it comes to issues of sexuality and LGBTQ. And you can see that what I'm trying to say in terms of other countries in Europe, like Norway and others, who have integrated their identity around that they are more progressive than the Muslim immigrant community, mm-hmm. right? That somehow what used to be kind of a, an outsider, the gay community, has been kind of almost nationalized into the identity of some European countries against Muslim immigrants, right? And so I think that's one of the aims of Islamophobia. I really think it's not just the Quran burners. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's only Quran burners, you can't bring in liberals, and you can't have hegemony in a true sense, right? You can't, you can't have a social formation if it's only a very small sector of the population who's being Islamophobic. And I think if you look at like Jihad Watch and other incitement nodes in the United States, you will see that they put in sometimes feminists and others into their organizations precisely to incite liberals into Islamophobia, right? And I think we have to be aware of that when we talk about this stuff. So there's two things going on. As a community, we have to be concerned about these issues, right? They're real. There's homophobia within the Muslim community, within the Arab community, um, right? But then there's also this thing, Islamophobia, which is trying to create a new social order where Muslims are the main ways in which it defines itself against, right? And in order to do that, you've got to bring in a larger population, Right? And so liberals are being assimilated into Islamophobia. I really think that's part of the actual intentional incitement going on in this. So it's not just the Donald Trump and the Quran burners. I think there's an intention to create also kind of a more liberal and to some degree even left Islamophobia to join in as a force. And that's when you have real trouble. Right? That's when can, you can have fascism. There's nothing to stop it literally. So now going back to Donald Trump, since you so effectively mentioned it, in the wake of his running nomination for presidency, how is it in this large echo chamber that is Donald Trump himself? How is that effectively (laughs) silencing the voice of reason and understanding when it comes to the Middle East and as well as minority voices as a whole? Anyone want to tackle that one? 
He's, he's taking advantage of poor and working-class white people who just feel so thrown away because of class oppression. And that's, that's all that's happening, is that they, they just are, have been shat on and shat on and shat on. And I love not being at work. I can wear bright colors, and I can swear when I'm on a panel. It's very... You can totally swear here. We're here. Yes, We're here. I know. It's so good. So, um, hi, I'm working class, and I swear when I really mean what I say. So there's this, another great book about, you know, why working class or poor people, white poor people vote against their own best interests. And what I've heard um, people say when I can try to hang out with people that are voting for Trump and really appreciate him, some of them work for the government, shocker, uh, is that... They respect that he says what he thinks. And I think that as a working person, you just are so grateful that you have a job and that you can pay rent. You probably have three jobs trying to make that rent. You keep your head down, and you just have so much resentment and so much heartbreak. And to see someone actually say what's on their mind, they wish they could say that too. It's not so much that they agree with his politics, they just want to be able to express their heartbreak and pain. And I find that the more I can listen to white working class or poor people about the horrible things going on in their lives, they can find an alliance with me. And then I can say, what might happen to me if he's elected? And they're like, oh, well, I don't want that to happen to you. Huh? I have to rethink this. So... So um, I've, I've thought about this a lot also because I have to listen to Donald Trump all day. Um, we all have to, I guess. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is there's I've, – I've banged on about this a million times, but um, there's this Turkish academic who's at UNC Chapel Hill who studies online movements. And she wrote this op-ed a few months ago where she said, you know, anyone who's studied what's going on online wouldn't necessarily be surprised by Trump's rise. And the thing that she was saying was that, you know, historically, the media, we were the gatekeepers, right? We were the ones who legitimized information. We were the ones who said, this is what's true. This is what isn't true. Now we live in a world where everyone is a content creator. Everyone can say what they want. That is important because it's not necessarily a bad thing because that's the reason why you know for example when you have you know uh, the new yorker publishes a racist poem everyone can turn around and be like no that was racist or when cnn has a panel after panel after panel where they have no muslim voices you can use social media to call them out so there is a valuable component to it but the problem is that there is another reality that exists. So there are lots of ideas and theories that are legitimized because there's a website about it. Or you look on Twitter and you find people who agree with you. And she says, she talks about going to a Trump rally and speaking to supporters. And she was like, I realized that I was in a different factual universe than these people. And, but what's interesting is that for me, I grew up in North Carolina and I saw on Facebook, I was in London, but I saw how the people I grew up with were telling the story of Trayvon Martin. And it was fascinating. They were sharing these memes and their, their concept of what actually happened in that story was completely not what happened. And I feel like what we're now seeing is, you know, we're moving into this world where the role of the media is now not just 
presenting the facts, but we're also now bullshit detectors as well. Now we have to say, actually, this rumor is not true, or this thing is real and it's not. And that's a very important part of the kind of political climate we're in today. Absolutely. And touching on Twitter and Facebook, that's another question that I have here for the panel at large, and feel free to answer whoever wants to jump at it. With the current presence of social media being our news ticker of the day, such as Facebook, Twitter, etc., how is it playing a role in us hearing and responding how it happens or how it unfolds, especially among in the first hours of, like, the Orlando shooting, you had everybody just, like, kind of, like, tweeting prayers and thoughts and yeah. then, like, who did this? And then, like, it kind of slowly start to spread us across social media. So I guess how does that news ticker play into, like, the way that we're receiving our information? So actually that's my, like, most of my job is, you know, breaking, like, being a breaking news person on Twitter. So I run the BuzzFeed news account when something like this is happening. And when you look at what people are tweeting in that moment, it's conspiracy theory like street, right? So the problem is that people have access to information so quickly that you have all sorts of stories that come out. The other thing is that if you've ever followed a breaking news situation, you know that facts shift. So even the police might get things wrong. So the problem that happens is then you get info wars and all these other people who start going, well, this shooting never really happened, like, you know, because this doesn't align with my political beliefs. So you do see the, like, creation of different realities. And the problem with social media is that it gives you information quickly, but it doesn't give you the whole picture. But people assume they have the whole picture from seeing a tweet or seeing a headline or seeing something that some outlet puts out there. And that's why, like, for me, I moved from editing and writing to this world because I was like, this is the thing that everyone sees. Everyone looks at this. And this person who puts this information out there is more responsible than anyone else in that conversation because real people feel the effect of getting that wrong. When you tweet a photo of a guy who you say is the Boston bomber and it's not him, you've destroyed his life in three seconds. Three seconds. It takes three seconds to tweet you've destroyed someone's entire life. So you have tremendous responsibility in that moment because people will believe that and they will not change their minds if it suits their politics. Right. Let's take it to the floor because God, you guys are all wonderful people for withstanding us. Um, I just wanted to ask anyone's opinion about the role of uh, CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations during the the recent, you know, aftermath of Orlando. Um, I'm in St. Louis. I think that our local leaders actually did a pretty good job of, you know, being leaders, um, which I had not, you know, on the issue of homophobia, which I had not uh, seen before. But I just wondered others' opinions on that. So, I'm on the board of CARE, although I'm not the best board member, so I don't know if I should... <laughs> Um, I think they were good on taking stand on the the homophobia piece. An ongoing issue we always, or conversation we always have is um, CARE often sends out those apology emails after every, anytime anything <laughs> happens that's perpetuated by a Muslim or whatever. And that I feel like I've always kind of struggled with and I've definitely given pushback just because I feel like we're feeding into the narrative that someone else created for us and I, I have issues with that, but I think um, taking a stand on homophobia or um, 
or even, you know, they've taken a stand on just sort of supporting BLM and kind of calling out the injustices and things that have happened with BLM and folks getting arrested for just organizing. And I think in terms of being allies, CARE is doing some things right. I think in general, how low are our, I'm just speaking as a queer person, how low are our expectations for allies? Right? And so anything that I've seen anybody do makes me cry. And, and that's good and that's bad. So my partner is here and native person, indigenous person. And when he came home with an I Heart Arabs shirt, I was like, yay, you're going to get hurt wearing that. Wow, you actually thought of doing that on your own. So I think it's a... Back and forth. And I've tried to reach for my queer Muslim pals. Once again, I think we've internalized so much, internalized colonialism and imperialism and misogyny and anti-Arab stuff and Islam. We swallow it. We're forced to. And so how can we in our relationships with each other actually say, you're great. I love being close to you. You're awesome. That's an excellent point. you have a question? I do. Go for it. Okay. She has the mic. Okay, uh, just a question on what Islamophobia and the rhetoric does to us in our writing processes, and if people can talk about that, about what we express, because I know that when I'm in spaces, we have a writing group in Detroit, and because it's a mostly Arab and or Muslim and or diasporic people's space, there's a lot more freedom in that space, and we protect each other, uh, and you see conversations and topics come out in writing that... I haven't seen come out in other workshop spaces or maybe haven't come out of me. I start speaking in multiple languages or writing in multiple languages, and it's, like, really freeing. But then that also means addressing certain topics. So if some of you folks could talk about your experiences with their discourse and how it envelops sort of our world and how we can go beyond that and complicate that. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I've kind of... Islamophobia and racism has really, like, Stunted my creative process and um, my, I guess, my ability to kind of work on my craft just because so often we have to be reactionary. We have to like fix things. There's, I realize like even in, like I was just reflecting recently, even in friendly articles, the language they use to describe us is violent and offensive. Like there's an article that describes Somali men talking and it used the word barking to describe the way people were talking and it was like a friendly article but I was like can you not make us out to be animals please <laughs> and and just even like you know I don't know if you guys saw there was an article on Phyllis Khan and Ilhan and they d- described Phyllis as a revolutionary and Ilhan as an insurgent and you know they, they tried to say that oh well that's political lingo and I, and I just remember thinking are you ignorant do you know that insurgency like paints a certain image and a specific person in people's minds and what, what that will do for readers and what kind of connotations that, that has. It just, it, it's been frustrating for me in tr- just as a consumer of information and then even as someone who contributes. Like, um, I've tried to submit commentary or just, you know, things to the strip and other media outlets and I always worry about what headline and what image they're going to pair with it. And if, like, I've even written to them and I said, you know, I'm interested in submitting this it's you know within their word count and I'm like I already have a headline please don't change it and if you're going to change it let me know and they refuse like they want the power to be able to kind of 
shape some of that. So I've like stopped sending things into the strip because I know they're not friendly to my community in terms of how they report uh, on us, but even in terms of how we can engage with them. And I refuse to perpetuate violence against my own community by having you know, written a thoughtful article and then it has a fucked up headline that then is offensive to everybody. And so I'm just like, I'm even limited, I feel like, in like what media outlets I can engage with in terms of who's going to accommodate basic requests like, don't mess up my, my piece, you know? Sarah, do you want to briefly touch on that a little bit? I mean, so I think the thing that I always tell people is push back. So always push back against headline, always push back against photos. That's your right as a writer. You have to do it. Because the thing is, these kinds of, this word selection that happens, the way these things get framed, you know, the beauty of institutionalized racism is that it runs on autopilot, right? So they think it's appropriate to use these words because that's what's been, you know, one time I remember like a couple of years ago, I was in a, in a newsroom, um, if you want, you can go through my LinkedIn history and figure out which outlet. But I had someone describe a describe Allahu Akbar as an ISIS slogan, and I was like, I was like, this is a thing every Muslim says. This is a thing a lot of people say. I was like, it is not an ISIS slogan, and immediately the editor was like, oh my god, and changed it. Right. So it's like, you have to have editors be willing to do this. But the beauty of social media is that if they get it wrong, you call them out. Like, I don't know how, like the other day, I think foreign policy did this thing about ISIS wives, like some, some you know, I don't know, some big story. Anyways, the, the photo, the photo that was illustrating it was obviously, you know, woman in niqab thing. I look at the photo and I was like, this is not a woman who is actually tied to ISIS. I went through and I actually um, searched for it on Getty, and it was actually a photo from at least 10, 15 years ago from Gaza. So I was like, actually, and I, I tweeted at them, and I was like, hey, this is not even a person who's tied to ISIS. So like A, reductionist article, terrible, but like B, you can't even identify the right group, right? So you always have to push back. So if you're as a writer, you should push back. You, as a person who's out there, push back because they, they do see these things. They need to care about it, but you can try to force them to care about it. Yeah, thank you so much. This is such an important conversation. So my mind is racing as a writer, but my uh, head is about to explode as an educator because I'm, I teach high school students, seniors who are going to be voting in the next election. I feel like this is such an important opportunity that this conversation happen in our classrooms. And so when we talk about how do we combat Islamophobia, I'm wondering, for example, with BuzzFeed, if there's any sort of educational outreach, because I know I'm, I'm doing as much as I can, but I think that my students are pretty much passive and I, I just think we, we really need to be addressing this with students' education because we'll have these really great conversations here, but then, you know, what happens after this festival, right? Can I just respond to the last question really quickly? Sure. So I think, the, I forgot your name, I'm sorry. What was your name? Oh, Camilla. Camilla. Um, she asked a really good question about how is this affecting the 
the writing community, right? And I can't necessarily speak about the writing community, but I know in the, in the social sciences, in the academic community, I've noticed something that's probably true also for the, the literature community, which is, again, just like our identities are being condensed by this rhetoric and this discourse, our writing is slowly being more and more aimed at sociology of Islam, right? Whereas before, the community had diverse issues, right? So many different diverse issues. As an academic, a member in the early 90s, even with the Iraq war, so many of us from Middle Eastern background were studying things like social inequality, right? Race and the marginalization of African-Americans, all of these things. And now all of a sudden, almost everyone I know who is of Middle East background in the social science is working on Middle East sociology of Islam kind of stuff, right? So there's, it's not necessarily, I'm not against that. I just, I mean, I'm not against studying sociology of Middle East and sociology of Islam, but that seems to be the only thing that's monopolized our response, right? So as a result, we're not thinking about other issues. We're not, we're not being creative in struggles that are outside of our own experiences. We're not, in that sense, going to make alliances. We're not, you know, limiting. And I, I don't know what it is in literature, but I would imagine there's probably a similar tendency going on. Um, so I think the thing is, so for BuzzFeed, the best thing that we could do is, so our editor-in-chief has really taken this stance of we want to report on these issues extensively and accurately. So, you know, if you come to BuzzFeed and you look at a story, and if you look at Paris, you look at Brussels, you look at Orlando, it's very much focusing on the facts and not, you know, kind of spreading rumors or that kind of thing. Um, as far as, like, internal discussions we like there's like a group called muslim feed so it's like all the people who are like muslim or like of muslim background and um you know we're empowered to push back against any because you know buzzfeed is a huge company has it's exists in 17 cities so if anything comes out that's like problematic we can push back against it so that's like the thing i think that applies to what you're talking about is that our audience, so maybe not necessarily for news, but our general audience is quite young. And especially, let's say, on platforms like Snapchat, most of our audience is teens, right? So you can't sit there and push hard-hitting news or analysis on teens, especially not on Snapchat, right? But, for example, we had, like, a Muslim takeover of Snapchat where it was, like, all these, like, memes and pictures and videos, and it's, like, you know, just talking about Muslims existing. And I feel like... I, I feel like it's... For educators, it's important to to teach young people how to understand what's real and what's not online. I feel like that is one of the most crucial mm -hmm. things that isn't happening right now. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like even if media outlets are doing their jobs correctly, like which everyone needs to do better, you you still can't engage if people don't think that you're telling the truth. <clears throat> um, my name is Adam. Uh, so I wanted to ask. So for a lot of people that were raised during like the 9-11 era and like middle school and high school, a lot of us faced like really despicable amounts of violence, um, mm -hmm. like physical and like mental and et cetera. Um, and the further we got from that, like from 2001, um, we kind of hoped that things were getting better and better. And now we see with like the Donald Trump campaign, it's almost like a resurgence of those same sentiments in like our middle schools and high schools. There's this study by the Southern Poverty Law Center saying that like two thirds of K through 12 teachers report that like Muslim immigrant and children of immigrant students are like terrified of what happened to their families after the election, that kind of thing. So like the next generation is being re-traumatized again. Right. And so I'm wondering, that's like very devastating to see because we all hope that 
the people that come after us will have a better future, you know. So what can we do as a community of people who survive that? What can we do to help that next generation of younger people and try to stop them from facing the same kind of trauma that we had to experience? Mm. It's all about love. There it is. So, wow. I just got flooded with my memories of where I was during 9-11, and we all could do that. And I haven't healed from that yet. And so how can I offer a certain piece of reality to young people when I'm not able to hold on to that reality yet? So I would say I need to keep working on healing that trauma. And I, I, we got a little hangry last night. Dinner was taking a long time. And I pulled hangry. out a meal from my bag and shared it with four women. And my people have been killed or chased for a couple thousand years now. So I, I carry that trauma. So the more I can heal and notice I'm safe, I'm awesome, Arabs are wonderful, Muslims are fabulous, how can I then share that reality with young people? I have lots of young people in my life, especially an 11-year-old. And at the age of four, he was looking at a magnet of Wonder Woman on my fridge. And he said, why is she wearing so few clothes compared to other superheroes? And without really thinking, I said, oh, it's sexism. And he said, what's sexism? At the age of four. I said, you know, I think he was seven. And I said, you know, sexism is this totally weird belief that men and boys are smarter or better than women and girls. And he said, well, that's not true. And I said, exactly. And then he was like, okay, on to the next thing. So I think that there are so many great opportunities, like the Wonder Woman magnet, to talk with young people about how totally great it is to be Muslim and that there are so many people that want to build a safe world for us and stand with us and how good we are. Yeah. So just your question kind of made me think about a couple of things. Um, one issue that persists even from when I was in high school to today is just sort of the institutional bias piece against a lot of like Muslim kids and specifically, I mean, I feel like also Muslim kids of color. Um, after 9-11 when I was in high school, all the Somali boys in my school, a lot of my friends were rounded up, were kept at school until 6 p.m., interviewed by local police and um, the school liaison without their parents' consent about what happened in New York, and this was in Rochester, Minnesota. So super bizarre, stupid, can I just say stupid? (laughs) Um, A violation of these little kids' civil liberties. um, But then also today, you know, last year, the DOJ was trying to get the CVE programs in Minneapolis public schools so they can spy, have high school Somali kids and middle school kids spy on other kids during lunch Oof. and during after school programs. And I think the school piece isn't happening, but the after school programs piece is happening. So it just really makes me think about the immediate criminalization of young people and how like the institutional bias piece is still alive and thriving, even independent of the bullying and all of that, which we often hear about. So it's it's tough because it's like, yes, we have to heal from like the interpersonal bias, but it's also the institutional piece as well. And like, I have a little girl that's two and a half, and I um, we're so intentional about like just kind of curating her identity and kind of making sure that she sees positive reflections of of her identity and all of that. But 
I am really worried about when she goes into the school setting mm -hmm. and what she's going to encounter there and what that will look like. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, I used to be an editor in the news. Like, the entire news space I've been in has been digital. And so I'm curious as... And then I eventually moved into, like, being a media analyst. Uh, so I worked for a news station, like, where we or newspaper, and we, we used to look at, like, traffic, hits, and use all that stuff. So I'm curious, given the way we, we share our work as writers... Um, and, and the way that Facebook and places like that curate our work to create echo chambers around what we like and what we won't like, right. how do we break through those echo chambers in a space where a lot of us, our, our fight is to create work and create art that does challenge these stereotypes, given the way that, like you said, the autopilot um, of racism and institutionalized oppression kind of combat that. So like, I'm trying to figure out, like, is, the, is it enough to kind of create work that fights this and... If so, how? Anyone this want one? to tackle that one? Uh, I was going to respond to something Ramla said that was really great, but I think this is a very good question as well. So at, at the end of one of my classes that I teach uh, on Islamophobia and, and incitements, at the end we read uh, some work by Ida B. Wells, right, an African-American writer who's writing, late, writing in the late 19th, early 20th century on the lynching of black men, right, and how she responded strategically because you had a kind of a northern liberal, at that time, liberal kind of almost curiosity of African culture um, and southern culture. And they, they were in many ways in collusion, even though they were critical of lynching. They were in collusion. They kind of just let it happen, right? So she wanted to find a way that she can break up this kind of white um, um, kind of cross-alliance between northern whites and southern, southern whites to stop the lynching of black men. And she does something very interesting. She goes to Europe, right? Especially Britain, who's at that time the Aryan top country of the world, right? The big major colonizer, and you know, with, especially with racial Darwinism. And she, she talks to major uh, um, uh, colonists and others who write in newspapers, in British newspapers, and talks about how irrational the US judicial system is, right? And that, um, and that, that, that you know, if you are in many ways going to be a representative of civilization, you have to deal with this issue, right? And so instead of her speaking out directly as an African-American woman who gets marginalized very quickly um, when every time she has to deal with this issue, she went to, unfortunately, she went to white men, right? And but was able to actually effectively get the, um, the, the northern whites to become a little bit more kind of sensitive to the issue, right? And as a result, she was able to, in many ways, I, almost single-handedly, I think, of it, within the, the newspaper industry to kind of transform the discourse over black lynching of black men, right? So my message here is kind of a weird one, and it's somewhat, some people are going to feel uncomfortable with this, but we have to, in many ways, talk to people who are of the dominant population, right? and get them to come out critically against this stuff. Because I know when I write stuff, it gets marginalized very quickly. Khaldun mm -hmm. Saman, you know, my name, gives it away to them. Boom, it goes nowhere, evaporates, right? But when whites talk about it, it's almost like I want to change my name because if I can change my name, I can have so much more of an effect, right? Change my name, I actually am really into Paul, so sometimes I go around... Um, to, you know, using the name Paul, and no one knows I'm Arab, right? Um, and then, I, like, when I go to cigar shops and I'm hanging out, I can talk politics in real ways with people. 
not as an Arab, right? Um, and I think there's, there's something to say about that strategy, even though we don't like the idea of it, right? To, to create a lie, a, an alliance with whites who we can kind of get to see some of these issues in different ways and get them to talk about it. Thanks for coming to this uh, panel, y'all. We appreciate that. Give it up for the panelists one time. You've been listening to Business Dream. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to receive new content coming soon. Our literary journal, Mizna, Prose, Poetry, and Art, Exploring Arab America, has two upcoming deadlines for writing submissions, one of which is right around the corner on July 29th. This issue of the journal will center on the theme of climate and the environment. The issue after that, for summer 2017, will follow up on the discussion you heard in this episode. That issue will feature the theme of surviving the rhetoric, with submissions due on February 28, 2017. While we are a platform for Arab and Arab-American writing, we also welcome submissions from others whose writing is relevant to the Arab community. Read more about writing guidelines at misna.org. We look forward to receiving your poetry and prose submissions. We'd like to thank Daniel Lurvie for capturing this audio and Bao Fee of the Loft Literary Center for his audio help as well. We are grateful to Ali Alabadi for facilitating this discussion and for working with me to edit this audio. Additionally, we would like to thank Khaldun Saman, who not only participated in this discussion, but is also the musician you hear in our theme music. If you're interested in learning to play the drum, you can learn from Khaldun himself through Mizna's drumming classes, which resume in September. Find out more about Mizna, our journal, our other programming, and this podcast at Mizna.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Sarah Dillard, Mizna Streams producer. Thanks again for listening.